A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is the Eurotrip. When you aren't listening, you can find us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. Warming you up for the Eurovision Song Contest. Hello and welcome to this brand new special bonus episode of the Eurotrip. Yes, that's right. Both me and Rob are back with you for the third time this week with, as I said, something extra special. Yeah, it's one of those things where you send off an email and you don't expect to get a response. Uh, That's what I did with the EBU a while back now. And then at the very, very start of this week, something popped into my inbox. And it was the green light for an interview with the man behind the Eurovision Song Contest. The man responsible for making sure that everything goes to plan. He's, of course, Martin Osterdahl. Eurovision's executive supervisor. This is like telling a child that they can talk to Santa Claus. And in this scenario, that child is James Rowe. It certainly is. I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it was to be able to speak to Martin. He's effectively the boss of the Eurovision Song Contest. So to be given that opportunity to speak to him in depth about his role, the planning for Rotterdam 2021, and his long and illustrious career, honestly, it was such a privilege. Now, long-time listeners will be know that we've been very lucky enough to speak to so many artists and, and other people associated with the Eurovision Song Contest. But this, Rob, this is something else really, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't get better than this. I honestly think this could be the last episode we ever do because we've peaked. We we may have peaked too early, but we have peaked. Yeah, you mentioned Martin's career there. You know, he he produced Melody Festival for many years. He was the exec producer at some of the huge contests we saw taking place in Sweden in the last decade, in, in Malmö and in, in Stockholm. So we have him to thank for an awful lot, including that exciting voting sequence we have now, which I know is one of the things that you do ask him about. Yeah, that's right, Rob. We cover all sorts of things in this half an hour conversation I was very lucky to have. And it's an absolute privilege of ours to be able to bring this conversation in full 
to you listening at home. If you do have any comments once you have listened to it, do, of course, get in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram. We are at Eurotrip Podcast. You can send us an email as well. We are hello at EurotripPodcast.com. But it's probably about time we do get to the interview. Me and Rob have said quite enough now. Uh, but there's so much we cover. Uh, we talk about Martin's illustrious career doing Melody Festival and producing those contests in Sweden over the last decade, as well as maybe a few teasers about what's to come in the years to come in the world of the Eurovision Song Contest. But it was a very timely opportunity to speak to Martin because, of course, the EBU has published the Health and Safety Protocol this week, which sets out the ways in which Scenario B can be carried out for this year's Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam this May. So I asked him to begin with how important it was to release this document earlier in the week. Well, it was always our intention to uh, to release the uh, health and safety protocol. Um, and I think it's it's important for many reasons, you know. Uh, first of all, to, uh, to show to everyone that we do take health and safety very seriously, uh, but also that we're doing everything that we possibly can to make sure that we can unite Europe again back on one stage, which is, you know, which is the core tradition and, uh, and the core values of our, of our DNA. So that's what we want to achieve. Obviously, it's, it's, uh, it's a difficult year to do that, uh, but we, we, we want to show that we're doing all we can. And it's good to be clear as well that a lot of this guidance and a lot of the guidelines are based on the current guidelines of the Netherlands rather than special rules being created for the Eurovision Song Contest itself. Well, that's right. I mean, uh, as you know, every, every year has its challenge. Uh, this year, of course, it's been the pandemic, uh, but we're going to one host city. We're going to Rotterdam. Um, and ultimately, it's it's down to what the local authorities uh permit us to do. And of course, a, a lot could change between now and May. The EBU has sort of reaffirmed the, the ambition to do a scenario B a situation in Rotterdam this year. Is there a, a point of no return, so to speak? You, of course, you are eyeing your intentions on a scenario B, but is there a date or do you have an idea of when it would be that you have to commit and assure yourselves that we are going for a scenario B? Well, um, in a sense, yes. I mean, the, the decisions that you've heard now, uh, beginning of February and beginning of March, uh, they're following a timeline that we set out from the very beginning, uh, because we know that there are trigger points in our planning where we have to make decisions, uh, and from, from which there, there's, there's little, little room for maneuver, and it's very difficult to go back. So essentially, when we, when we decided to, um, to discard scenario A, which is the, the normal song contest, um, when we do that, we, that means that we're not able to sort of scale back into an A scenario, unfortunately. Um, it's, uh, that's the way it works. We can, we can we continuously scale down uh, and we have readiness to, to move into a more restrictive scenario if we have to, uh, but we're not able to scale back up again. Uh, so that's why we're also keeping the best possible scenario alive as long as possible. Of course, one of the, the last remaining decisions, I guess, to be made is, of course, on the live audience in the arena. It's already been said that that's been put off on, until April, which is, I guess, the, the latest opportunity it could be done. If we don't get an audience, how much like a normal Eurovision Song Contest do you think it would look to, to the viewers at home watching? 
Well, it's really interesting now watching all the national selections that are taking place uh, because you, you, do, you do realize how much uh, a live audience means to these shows. Uh, I mean, we, we've, we've always known it, but it's, it becomes very obvious when, when, when national selections take place in, in empty arenas. But uh, we're hopeful that we will have some kind of audience or some people in front of the stage. It means a lot to the show. Um, if, if that would be impossible, then we're, of course, looking into how to compensate for that by, uh, you know, with clever television technology, with, with things like audio enhancement um, and other things that, that we've also become used to seeing in, in live television today. Uh, now, recently on the podcast, we were, we were very lucky enough to, to speak to Sita uh, Tabaka, of course, the executive producer of, of this year's contest. And he said last summer, his team was looking at how you can run a live event despite the pandemic last summer. How much involvement were you having in those plans? Or was that more of a job for, for him and his team than just relayed that information back to you? We, we, we speak on a daily basis and we have done since, since May uh, when, when the cancellation was made. Uh, and, and, you know, all our efforts when it comes to contingency planning, backup scenarios is, is a joint effort between the EBU and the house broadcaster. So uh, we're very much aligned and, and, uh, and in touch. Now then, uh, a lot of listeners may be new to you, in fact, because you took over from Jan Olesand uh, in 2020. But you do actually have a, a long history with the contest itself, don't you? So can you tell us a bit about the ways in which you've already worked uh, as part of the contest? Sure. Now, I've, um, well, I, I, first of all, I'd like to perhaps start by saying that uh, I produced the, uh, the Swedish uh, national selection to uh, to the Eurovision Song Contest, which is called Melody Festival, um, but that's all the way back in 2005, 2006, 2007. So that's ages ago. Uh, but uh, ever since then, I've travelled to each Eurovision Song Contest with um, with the delegation, not not necessarily part of a delegation, but but with the delegation in some way. Um, and I've worked with the Swedish broadcaster SVT. Um, for a long time as a commissioner of entertainment and also a commissioner of sports. So I've, I've, I've been involved with, with preparations and planning for, for a lot of large uh, sport events as well, which is a useful experience. Uh, but then of course, I, I was the executive producer for Eurovision Song Contest 2013 in Malmö. Um, it's a very fond memory. Uh, and then again, we, we were lucky enough to, uh, to have the opportunity to host it again in 2016 in Stockholm, uh, where I again was, was the executive producer. And uh, in between those years and after, uh, and after Stockholm, I also stayed on in total of, of seven years on the, on the Eurovision Song Contest reference group. So I think it's fair to say that I, um, I have devoted some time to this contest. Uh, now, two of the ways um, which we've seen the contest evolve over the, the last decade or so have both come when you were executive producer in 2013, where we saw the, the jury-led running order come into place. And then in 2016, of course, the overall the overhaul rather of the way the, the voting sequence takes place. You seem to have a bit of a knack of creating changes to the contest that really, really improve the viewing experience for, for people at home. Well, thank you. I mean, we we um, we in, in you know in Sweden, we I think the the great advantage that we that we've had there, and and, that, and I I tell my my member my EBU member friends that uh, we talk about it quite a lot, 
is the experience of having a large national selection, which very much, which is similar to, to the Eurovision Song Contest in size um, and, in, and, and in production complexity. We, we, in Sweden, we essentially produce a Eurovision Song Contest every year uh, for six Saturdays in a row, uh, as you probably know, on a tour around the country in ice hockey, uh, ice hockey size sport arenas. Um, and, and, you know, having, having that opportunity, you can try out a lot of different things. And uh, when, we, when we, we had the opportunity to win the first time in Baku with, with Euphoria, we, 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 we were loaded with ideas on how to improve uh, the show that we loved, the, the Eurovision Song Contest. But it's, it's important to, to also to change it, but not to change it too much, because there, there, there are things that are in the DNA and the core of the contest that should always be there. But we had a couple of ideas already in 2013 that we wanted to change, as you mentioned. I mean, we, we introduced the, uh, the, the, the producer set running order. Uh, we also introduced a standing audience. Uh, if you remember, uh, we wanted to get that, that, you know, really energetic feeling in front of the stage. Um, we did other things like we wanted to introduce the, uh, the big five more in the semifinals. We had a list of things that we wanted to 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 um, to, to change, and, and luckily the reference group and you know Lasan gave us the, um, the the opportunity to do that. The big one, however, was the ending of the show, uh, and that started already back in Baku when when we were in the arena, and I think for for something like forty minutes uh, left of the show, everyone know everyone knew that you that Lorraine had won, uh, and it just seemed to me not the the, the dignified ending to the greatest show on the planet uh, to go around all these spokespersons for, for well over half an hour uh, after the television audience actually knew uh, that Sweden had won. So uh, it just seemed to us that there must be a better way to find a climax to this show. So we were already actually working on it for, for Malmö 2013, but it, but it wasn't until 16 that it happened. You mentioned in, in 2013 where you had this list of things you, you would have wanted to change. And, and of course, you did change a few of these things. And then 2016, the voting sequence changed. We've also got another fairly big rule change for, for 2021 as well, with the addition of the, the vocals on, on the backing track. Was this something that you've had in mind for, you know, since 2013? Or is this a rule that you're bringing in purely because of the pandemic and to limit the amount of people who are traveling to Rotterdam? Uh, it's, it's, um, I know it's something that has been discussed in the reference group before, before I came on board, but, but I actually thought of it as a contingency planning measure, uh, realizing the, the, the nature of the pandemic, uh, and, and, uh, understanding that this would, this would mark, this would, this would mark our year for sure. I, I wanted to give the delegations heads up. Uh, and, and maximum flexibility to plan for a smaller delegation to travel to, to the Netherlands um, and, um, uh, and to try this out. I mean, we, we've said we'll try it for, for this year and then we'll evaluate how we, how we proceed. I think there could also be potential for unleashing more creative uh, capacity or cre creative potential in the performances um, without again without damaging the, the core without damaging what what the Eurovision should always be so we've been very careful about defining what kind of backing vocals we allow on the backing track and, and which we don't allow um, 
and then we'll then we'll evaluate afterwards. But um, hopefully, it's something that will will help us to manage the difficulty with the pandemic. It will also help the delegations to keep costs down because that's another aspect that we haven't talked so much about the, the financial burdens and the financial implications of everything uh, connected to the pandemic, which which are you know very very difficult. Uh, but also that we might see some 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 new creative leaps being taken. Uh, hopefully, both of that. Of course, you mentioned this is a, a trial, so to speak. Do you think if we were doing a normal contest where we had a full audience and we hadn't even heard of the pandemic, do you think this rule change would have come into force nonetheless? Perhaps um, at some point, but but um, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, it's uh, it's something that again, it's something that we have tried and, and done in, in in the Swedish national selection. Um, and uh, it's it's worked out well there. We've, we've we've worked around with different different ways of getting it right. We we don't like backing vocalists on stage who are miming. We don't like people who are miming at all. So we're we're blending uh, backing vocals on backing track with with real time singing in case of, of harmonies um, in that in that show. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, it, it's quite possible that we would have suggested it and, and tried it on even without the pandemic. But I don't I don't think it would have happened this year unless uh, it, it had been for the pandemic. I'd love to know what else is on your wish list, so to speak, in terms of <laughs> other rules you would like to change. Of course, you mentioned the reference group, and I'm wondering if you can give us an idea about how you work alongside the reference group. But is there anything that's on your, your wish list to change? Oh, no, I want to keep you. I want to keep you guessing. <laughs> in that case, then, let me ask you about the reference group, because you've mentioned it a couple of times. Can you give us an idea of how that of how that works and, and how rules get to change because of the reference group? Yeah, no, the, the reference group um, is, is the governing body of the Eurovision Song Contest. So so the EBU is a member organization. We work for our, our members who are the participating broadcasters in the Eurovision Song Contest. The members are are national broadcasters so the, the the bbc in the uk and and and, uh, and france television in in, in france etc um and and we have a governing structure for all our our uh, activities uh, within the ebu and the reference group is the governing body for uh, for the eurovision song contest it consists of me uh, a chairman um three elected heads of delegations from the participating broadcasters um, and um, and then we also have uh, we have a couple of, of of wild cards as we call them who are specialists uh, in TV production uh, and in, in Eurovision Song Contest related items that we can elect uh, to the group invite to the group um, and then during the meetings we also have the partners present uh, typically not always but 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 most often and the partners are. Um, our commercial partners who, who handles the sponsorship and, and uh, marketing aspects. It's Universal Music who handles the music side. It's, uh, it's Digame, the, the, the company who takes care of the voting and the voting technology, etc. So it's a, it's a group where, where me and my team uh, at the EBU uh, prepare a lot of uh, decisions and a lot of measures that need to be decided upon. 
I'd like to very briefly go back to, to something you mentioned before about, of course, the, the pandemic has created a lot of uh, struggles and a lot of challenges for, for you and your team. One of the things you mentioned was, of course, the financial difficulties. I'm wondering if, if you can just give us an idea of, of how difficult that has made the planning for, for this year. Um, well, I mean, first of all, it's, um, it's, it's a tremendous burden to host the Eurovision Song Contest. That, that's, uh, that's a well-known fact. Uh, I think in in uh, in one of the shows that we produced from Sweden, we uh, we had an interval act about this, uh, saying that everybody want, wants to win the contest that you cannot afford, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, that was that was obviously a joke, but there's some truth in it. Um, so so um, we we're very lucky uh, that that the city of Rotterdam and, and the host broadcasters in the Netherlands had the courage to um, to commit to hosting again. Uh, after the cancellation, and of course, the most of the of the financial pressure is on them. Uh, but there's also financial pressure on 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 the participating broadcasters in, in terms of um, uncertainty when it comes to to traveling and traveling costs and hotel costs and, and all the planning costs. Um, you know, for each for each participating broadcaster, the, the pandemic has hit uh, very hard. Um, we're, we're also asking them this year to produce a live on tape backup in a, in a home studio environment. That's something that's never been done before. It's uh, 41 unique recording sessions that are taking place uh, all the time. It's actually there's actually one taking place right now. So if you see me try and get rid of notifications on the screen, it's because I, I get notifications from the live on tape recording session. Uh, it's it's going on all the time. I mean, people are working all over Europe constantly to make this show happen. Um, and um, there's yeah, the live on tape backup is of course uh, quite a significant extra extra burden, extra cost for the for the participating broadcasters this year. You've mentioned about how there's a performance going on right now. And of course, we've heard that other countries have already done theirs in the last week or so. You must have seen them. Surely you'll be happy with the outcome of some of these that you've seen already. I'm very happy with with uh, the way that the, you know, I said at the beginning of this year that, that this year would be a real test for our co-production model. Uh, and maybe this is a little technical and, and a little bit of, of um, television lingo, but the Eurovision Song Contest is a co-production. It's, it's a co-production between 40 plus uh, different national television companies in Europe and beyond. Uh, and it's, it's very complex. It's very complex in a, in a, in a good year. Uh, this year, it really is a co-production like never before. And these live on tape recording sessions really, really are uh, putting it to the test. Uh, and I'm super happy with the way we've communicated with all the heads of delegations. Uh, we've had more meetings with the delegations than we've ever had before. Uh, we've shared all our plans. We've listened to their feedback. We have, uh, we've tried to be as open as we can about the challenges that we face. Um, and to see, to see these uh, live on tape backups now coming into fruition and actually being, being produced is, is, um, is, uh, is, is great to see. Um, and I had the pleasure of, of, of uh, seeing one just last night, when I was super impressed by by the preparations that had been made, and it was it was all really smooth. Um, so fingers crossed. We're we're hoping we won't have to use them <laughs> in the show as as much, but uh, 
but they're very good to have. And I think if we, if we, if we were to end up in a situation where we have to scale back down again to a more restrictive scenario, I'm quite confident that we will have a great show. Now, this is your first year as executive supervisor of the Eurovision Song Contest. But of course, last autumn, you were there for junior Eurovision in Poland, where they did end up using the the on-tape backup performances. How much have you been able to learn from the junior Eurovision Song Contest of last year? The junior was a wonderful, wonderful show in itself. I think think the the Polish... uh, host broadcaster TVP did an absolute fantastic job in, in uh, uniting uh, a lot of countries. It was 12 participating countries in the end. Uh, they managed with, with cutting, cutting edge state-of-the-art technology to create a show where uh, we went from lives, live in the studio uh, to each country for, for reactions, for interviews, we we even managed to unite them all on on the on on the same stage all, all the uh, all the all the performers through um, augmented reality technology. Um, I think the outcome was was great. I think the show looked seamless. It looked um, modern. It it, um, it was a it was a really good result. And of course, in the, in the preparations and in the um, leading up to the to the junior, we we learned so much uh, that we could also uh, bring with us for for the song contest in the spring. Of course, they're very different shows. They're very different in, in many ways, but but certainly Junior was a very good, uh, very good learning learning curve for us. What is your role going to look like? Well, actually, I'd like to ask about what your role will look like on each of the the show nights. But what is your role going to look like between now and May, and when you go to Rotterdam? Uh, where, where do you want me to start? <laughs> because clearly, <laughs> you're between... gonna, yeah, because of course, you're going to be a very busy man between now and then. We are in this period now where we've still got a, a good 20 or so songs to be released. It's going to be a very busy few days and then it's going to be a very busy few months of preparation still to go. Yeah, for sure. This is uh, this is the the peak time for us. Um, but it's it's not it's not just me. I mean, I have a I have a wonderful team of people around me who who uh, are working on this uh, from the office uh, offices down here in in, in Geneva, uh, but also a, a super dedicated crew in in the Netherlands who are already now pre-producing the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, but yeah, this is a busy, busy, busy time period. Uh, the the most important thing now is to uh, is to finish all the preparations uh, before we actually arrive on site in Rotterdam. Uh, it has been a lot about contingency planning and health and safety and backup plans, and I expect that it will continue to be so, unfortunately, um, until the very end. But hopefully, also the situation with the pandemic will improve, uh, and we can be uh, we can be uh, perhaps. Uh, focusing on other things, uh, but but now we need we really need to start looking at fine tuning things at the show. The the show producers have a, a wonderful set of shows for us uh, with plans that they've worked on for a long time now. Because of the cancellation, they've had extra time. Um, so we need to we need to look into the nitty gritty of of of, uh, of that into script into into how the hosts will act, uh, how we interact with with uh, with the voting and so on. So um, that's that's pretty much business as usual for the Eurovision Song Contest, but with the with the added layer of the pandemic, of course. 
and then on the night of the the semi-finals and the grand final you'll be inside the arena you'll be sitting at that that long desk that very important desk of yours um what will your role look like on those nights what what does your job actually entail when the shows are going on well i'm i'm the long desk you're referring to is called the scrutineer's desk um, and that's where the executive supervisor uh, sits during the show to essentially supervise uh, and, and overlook the, the contest. Uh, I mean, ultimately, that is my, 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 uh, my biggest responsibility to protect the integrity of the contest, to make sure that the performances have, have, um, have all been carried out in accordance to the rules. Um, to intervene if, if necessary. Thankfully, that doesn't happen very often. We, <laughs> we rehearse a lot. That's, uh, it's what separates Eurovision Song Contest from all other live entertainment television shows is that we rehearse so much. Uh, and therefore, you, you, see, you see a perfection in, in a lot of performances that you don't see uh, elsewhere. So hopefully, the, uh, the intervening will be limited. Um, but but that's what I'm there to do if necessary. And then of course it's it's the voting to validate the uh, the, the results and, and to uh, to send the results on to uh, to the show producers and to the hosts so they can um, share share the the results with the viewers. And is that when you're going to be most nervous throughout the entire year when the results are in and you've got to press that button to send the results up to the to the presenters? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it, it'll be my most nervous moment. It's certainly the most exciting moment. Uh, and I think it is for everyone. Uh, and, you know, for us on, on a personal level, it's also going to dictate a lot what, what our next year is going to be like, where we're going to be working, uh, who, who we're going to be working with. So it's super exciting to see who wins. Um, but yeah, potentially I, I, um, I might be a little bit nervous too. I've got to end by asking you a few fun questions as well. We know that Yono Lassand over the last decade or so has had his, uh, his catchphrase of take it away. When you tell them they can do the results, have you thought about it? Have you got a catchphrase of your own? Well, you just have to wait and see. You've thought about it, haven't you? You've got something up your sleeve. You never know. <laughs> Uh, I've got to ask you as well, of course, about uh, Melody Festival, and you're a man who comes from Sweden. You've worked for SVT before. We are looking forward to the second chance round this coming weekend. Have you been watching it this year at all? Have you been Have you been impressed by the way they've put on a show this year? Yeah, of course, I've watched it. I mean, it's, I have so many friends working working with the show, um, and I like watching the show. I have three kids as well at home, um, and. Uh, it's uh, it's just not it's not on uh, to not watch Melody Festival and that's uh, you know a Saturday night in in, in February uh, you're watching Melody Festival and <laughs> so yeah we're watching it uh, we're enjoying it um, uh, I, when I refer to uh, to the national selections um, and it's interesting to to uh, to look at them now to see how they handle the challenge of not having an audience Melody Festival is of course one of them. Uh, that I was I was referring to, it's uh, I think they've done a really good job this year. Um, I think the um, there's also an interesting um, curve between the first episode and and uh, and, and the fourth, and so uh, it, it goes to show that they've um, they they've adapted and changed a few things, and they've got got used to these new circumstances. And now I think the show is running as well as it ever has before. Um, and yeah, the second second chance show is is um, 
is on Saturday. Uh, I'm sure we'll be watching. Very good. I've got to end by asking you a question we ask everybody who comes on, on the podcast. Uh, puts you on the spot a little bit, but I'm sure you of all people can come up with an answer. Um, because being involved in the Eurovision Song Contest, being a fan, you may well get asked often, what is your favourite Eurovision song of all time? But we ask it a little bit differently. And it's, what is your second favourite Eurovision song? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you tricked me. Well, I mean, I have I have a lot of songs that I like from 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 the Eurovision Song Contest. I have to be honest and say that my my answer would be the uh, the two songs that I've been that I've won with uh, because they've meant so much for me on a on a personal level. So it's it's a little bit maybe a, a slightly egoistical answer, but but it's the truth. I mean, both Euphoria and um, uh, Hero. Uh, you know they they uh, they meant so much to me. So uh, if it's the second favorite, I'm gonna have to choose between Mons and Lorraine, and that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> In that case, we can leave. It I, I I object. Yeah. <laughs> Martin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Don't forget, you can get in touch with us on social media. We're at Eurotrip Podcast. I don't know about you listening at home, but I feel like we almost shouldn't have heard most of that conversation. It was such an incredible insight into the inner workings of the Eurovision Song Contest and the Junior Eurovision Song Contest as well from Eurovision Exec Supervisor Martin Osterdahl. And James, I've got to say to you, thank you for such an excellent line of questions. I feel like we found out all sorts there. Oh, that's very kind of you, Rob. It felt like to me, even though I was asking the questions, it felt like I was a fly on the wall really because like you said it felt like we're not allowed to hear that sort of thing because Martin doesn't do many interviews so for us to be able to bring this interview to you listening at home is I think I said this at the top of the episode as well it's an absolute privilege of ours and he's clearly a very busy man because there was an even that moment where he said sorry I don't know if you can see me doing this and you of course can't see it at home but he was sort of flicking away notifications on his phone because he was busy at the same time watching performers doing their backup performance in case the scenario B can't go ahead so he is a very busy man he's got a lot on his plate but that has got to be a dream job for anybody who loves the Eurovision Song Contest hasn't it Rob? It just proves how busy the people are who are working so hard to bring us this contest in May and I think I speak for all of us you know just how thankful we are that that we are going to get that contest and we're going to have so much to look forward to in the weeks and months to come Uh, but as ever of course as well do let us know what you thought of the interview any of the interesting stuff that martin said there we are at eurotrip podcast on twitter and instagram and the email address once again hello at eurotrippodcast.com yep as rob says do get in touch with anything you have to say we we always love to hear what you guys at home have to say about any of the interviews we do or anything else we do here on the podcast. But for the third time this week, it is probably about time we start to wrap up. I will just finish yet again by saying a big thanks to the EBU and a big thanks to Martin for donating some of his time earlier in the week to have this such a wonderfully insightful conversation that you will not hear anywhere else. 
Absolutely not. Uh, we should say before we go as well, we of course back with you in a couple of days' time. Well, Monday, so maybe three days' time, depending on when you're listening, for Melfest Monday, the penultimate episode of Melfest Monday, as we will be looking ahead to the grand final of this year's Melody Festival. And uh, Gustav Darlander from SVT joining us again. We'll be hearing from Tobiet from Afton Bladet. And Anton Ewald as well will be joining us ahead of his appearance in that final. So if you're listening before Monday, make sure you join us for that as well. Absolutely. And of course, we'll be back again in our usual Wednesday spot for your ordinary edition of the Eurotrip featuring all the latest news and a big name guest from the world of the Eurovision Song Contest. So in summary, if you like the podcast, good news. There's lots more to come if you don't bad luck because there's a lot more (laughs) indeed there is plenty more to come from us here on the Eurotrip but until we are back with you don't forget to subscribe leave us a review and rate us five stars from me Rob it's goodbye and from me James it's goodbye Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.